Well, there's been a lot of talk uh, this year among churches about what we're going to do because normally on Easter Sunday, it's a big day like the Super Bowl inside of churches. I mean, the place is packed all over and the mood is high and the best speakers and singers are out there and a lot is happening. There's in some churches pageants and lights and fog and big personalities, but this year, the mood is quiet, tentative, Awkward even at times, at least here uh, in the sanctuary. This will be the first year, in fact, in my entire career where some official from the church does not call me and ask how many are in your service. If they do, there's about six. Actually, the Rennebargers, the Clarks, the Tonegals, and a few others have more people in their living rooms than any church has in Grant County. So everything that we use to measure success in past Easter's has changed. But maybe that's a good thing. I'm thinking maybe this year, Easter will be more like it was the first year when it actually happened. It was not a big pageant with big personalities, lights, fog, bands, and sermons. It was witnessed, I think I counted six, who actually saw the empty tomb. But those witnesses went out so convinced of Jesus' life in this world that they became powerful proponents of the gospel. And they eventually, and others like them, ended up unsettling the powers of Rome, even turning the world upside down. Some of the disciples, in fact, most of them, would give their lives because they wouldn't recant on the message they heard on Easter. And because of it, millions of people became followers of Jesus Christ through their word. If that's what happens this Easter, because we can't gather in a large assembly, but we have to stay like first century exiles scattered all over the country, I would take that trade any year. But so you might know what the message of Easter is, I want to preach, if I can, uh, quickly on the gospel of Easter. The gospel, you will remember, is the inbreaking of good news to people that are caught in a struggle between powers that are over their heads. It's an event or an announcement that suddenly comes into their world telling them that the momentum has shifted in their favor. The outcome has been decided. And because they believe it now, even before the outcome, they start living differently. If you read the story of Easter like that, what is the conflict? What is the good news? What does it change? And what does it mean to believe it? It becomes the gospel again. Now, most people believe that the four gospels are just four different ways of telling the same story, but they have one message. Jesus rose from the dead, and because of that, 
we will rise from the dead someday too. But when you actually read the gospels, you discover that they don't tell the same story at all. And none of them have that message. In fact, the message that is most commonly associated with Easter Sunday in churches all over, that because Jesus rose, we will rise too, is nowhere present in any of the four Gospels. So then what is the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, it depends on which one is talking. If you let all four of them speak to you, you start to hear a message that, that, that starts here, and then as the next gospel speaks, it gets louder. And then as the next one speaks, it gets even more clearer, and it elevates in its mood and its intensity until it builds into a quiet crescendo. Let me start with Matthew. I hear Matthew singing alone. In Matthew, the central figure is the guards. Matthew alludes to the guards five times. No other gospel refers to them at all. So Pilate said, put a guard in front of the tomb. So they sealed the tomb and they posted a guard there. The guards in Matthew's gospel are a symbol of Roman imperial authority. They move and act at the behest of Rome, but but their job is to keep the one who is in the tomb in the tomb. So he is no longer a threat to Caesar and to the Roman way of life. Because in Matthew, there's a rumbling that Jesus might be king. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? The kingdom of heaven, said Jesus, is like a king who had a son. So you are a king, said Pilate to Jesus. You are a king then, Jesus said. Those are your words. And they put a sign over his head that said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews, said the mockers at the sight of the crucifixion. If he is a king, let him come down from the cross. Of course, he isn't that kind of a king. The kingdom that Jesus rules is a kingdom where the king dies for the servants. The servants don't die for the king. The king gives his power away. He doesn't hoard it. And so the gospel on Easter Sunday morning, according to Matthew, is a conflict between the imperial authority of Rome or Caesar and the divine ultimate authority of Jesus Christ. 
And on Easter morning, an earthquake moves the stone, raises the one who was dead, and then leaves the soldiers as though they were dead. Now, at the end of Matthew, the disciples are running all over making disciples, and the Roman soldiers and those who were in charge are scrambling all over trying to cover their tracks. In Matthew, the fortunes have changed. Caesar is not Lord at all. Jesus is. So to the first century Christians who were well familiar with the threat of persecution from Rome, to those who knew what it meant to huddle in fear, the message of Easter in Matthew is crystal clear. There is no king but Jesus. We have no king but Jesus. Our allegiance and our loyalty are to him. So if you live in a time when your government feels like it's too powerful, it feels to you like your king or your president is overreaching in his power, if it feels like the government that you're under is insensitive, as if they're malpracticing the authority that was handed to them if they seem self-serving, if you are the victim of threats or injustice. The message in Matthew is, Jesus is your king. You have no king but Jesus and your authority belongs to him. You see what I mean? That's a powerful message. Now put next to that the gospel of Mark, and it becomes almost a duet. Matthew's message gets even stronger. In Mark, the central figure are the women. In fact, the disciples are nowhere present at all. They're just alluded to by the angel. And the problem with the women in Mark is that they're afraid, terrified is a better word. And this is strange because in the Gospel of Mark, the threat is not external. It's not coming from the Romans or from Jewish leaders. It's coming from the shock and the feeling of displacement in the women themselves. And so on Easter morning, when Jesus has risen, the angel says, go and tell that Jesus is alive, but they can't say anything because they're terrified. In fact, the whole gospel ends in verse eight, the shorter version anyway, and it says the women fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, this is strange in Mark because I count six or seven times in this gospel alone where Jesus heals people and then tells them not to tell anyone, but they promptly turn around and go out and tell everyone. 
When a leper comes to him, he says, don't say a word to anyone. But the leper went and told everyone. When the unclean spirits saw him and they fell at his feet, Jesus said to the spirits, don't breathe a word of this to anyone. But they fled and everyone heard about it. When they brought him a deaf man or when Jesus went into the back room and he raised a girl that was dead, he came out and said to the audience, don't say a word about this to anyone. But they all turned around and told everyone. Now, in Mark chapter 16, when Jesus finally releases them to tell everyone, they tell no one because they're afraid. So the conflict in Mark is between a crippling fear and a boldness that is born of faith. And the women never know which one to follow from day to day. So the good news on Easter morning in Mark comes from the mouth of the angel who says, he is alive and he has gone ahead of you and there you will see him, just as he said. The first listeners to Mark's gospel were little Christian circles that gathered in Rome. They knew firsthand the women's feeling of confusion and loss, the shock and the trembling, the threat of persecution, alienation, even death. But they also heard the angel's words, Jesus is alive. And not only is Jesus king, as Matthew said, Jesus is going ahead of us. There we will see him. They must have looked at each other and said, no matter what happens outside these walls, we are never leaving Easter behind. We are always walking into it. If you find yourself afraid, if, if suddenly you feel like you can't leave your home because you don't know what's going to happen, if, if, if you're facing some overwhelming, paralyzing fear this morning, hear the gospel on Easter from Mark. Whatever happens in the days ahead, Jesus is alive and he has gone ahead of you. And there, wherever you go, you will see him just like he said. Do you see how when you put that next to Matthew's message, it gets even stronger and more powerful and compelling. The third and last voice I'm going to bring this morning I'm saving John for next week. <laughs> is Luke. And Luke is this beautiful conversation between Jesus and a couple of disciples. 
In Luke, the central figure is not the 11, it's the two who are not part of the 11, at least not now. At once they were with the 11, but the day has ended, the third day when he's supposed to be alive and is not. And so they have left Jerusalem where all of the action and the hope is still lingering. And they're on this path out toward a city called Emmaus, about seven miles out of town. And while they are walking, they're having a conversation and they're relaying back and forth the details of everything they've been told. And suddenly, in the language, in the original version, uh, sounds as though Jesus appeared out of thin air. He didn't walk up from behind them. He literally appeared behind them while they were walking and he interrupted the conversation. What are you talking about as you walk along? Only the words are more um, animated and emotionally charged in the original. He said literally, what are these words that you're throwing back and forth at one another? So you see their arms flailing and their voices rising and suddenly this person appears and he wants to know what kind of conversation are you having as you walk along? Suddenly they stop and they look to the ground. And one of them turns around and says, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened? And Jesus says, what things? Watch it. And they go into a long spiel about what they've heard from the women, what they've heard from their companions, how they've heard he was alive, but him they did not see. We had hoped he was the one to redeem us, but this is the third day. And so far as we know, none of this has happened yet. <laughs> it's right here. Finally, when they are done, Jesus speaks. And when he speaks, I notice a couple things. First, he waited till they were done. He never interrupts them and he never corrects them. He just lets them talk about all these things that have happened. And second, what they're telling him is all true. They're not making any of this up. This isn't fake news. They're not even embellishing this. Everything they're saying is true. And finally, when it is his time to speak, Jesus takes what they're saying and beginning with Moses and the prophets and going into all of the scriptures, he takes the part that they know and he sets it in the wider, deeper, bigger, more mysterious message that is contained in the scripture. Which is actually a third thing I noticed. 
Everything Jesus told those two about the scriptures, they probably already knew. I don't think Jesus was pointing to facts or references in the Old Testament that they were unfamiliar with. They probably knew it, but they couldn't believe it because of all these things that have happened. These things have kept us from believing what we know. Well, about this time, they arrived in Emmaus. And when they got in Emmaus, Jesus acted as if he was going further, but the disciples asked him to stay, so he did. And there in this house in Emmaus, they sat down to eat. And uh, Jesus took the bread at the table and he broke it. He blessed it and then he broke it. And as he gave it to them, their eyes were opened and immediately he vanished. This is the strange part of Luke's story. When it started, they could see him, but they didn't recognize him. And when it ends, they recognize him, even though they can't see him. They who could only see what they couldn't recognize have learned to recognize whom they cannot see. Because that is the best way to know anyone. To know when someone is present, even when physically they are not. Because you can recognize what they're doing, where they're at, is to know someone. So the conflict in Luke is between despair and hope between running away and staying in the community between all of these things that have happened and the larger story where all of these things make sense there's a conflict in Luke 24 and you never know do you which one you belong to if you're hearing this for the first time back in Luke's day, or if you're hearing this again today, and you feel disappointed or disillusioned or hurt or bored with religion, if, if, if you find yourself saying, you know, I, I thought this was going to be better than this, and it's not, and and you're disappointed with your religion and you're ready to leave, hear the gospel on Easter from Luke. Jesus is with you even when you think he is not. And he's listening 
allowing you to finish the story about all these things that have happened. And then the gospel according to Luke is that Jesus has this beautiful way of taking all of these things that overwhelm you and putting them in the larger story of the gospel and the resurrection. And this Jesus who does this with you this morning can be recognized even when he cannot be seen. So the two, as soon as Jesus vanishes, they get up and they run back to Jerusalem. And when they get in Jerusalem, they find the 11 still assembled together. And they start telling the 11 everything that had happened. And this, this is one of my favorite scenes in, in the Gospel of Luke because the two are telling the 11 that when we were in the room, he was recognized by us when he broke the bread. It was when he broke the bread our eyes were open. That was when we could recognize him. I love this because I think Luke is the only gospel who tells us that at the Last Supper a few days earlier when Jesus took that meal with his disciples, what Jesus actually said to them was, I will not eat of this bread again until I eat it with you in the kingdom until the kingdom of God comes. And now here he is at a table in Emmaus doing the very thing he said he would not do unless the kingdom had come. What can this mean except that the kingdom had come in Emmaus? In a land of doubt, to two people who were leaving religion, not coming into it, it was there where the kingdom, the thing we were waiting for sometime in the future, just broke in and settled among us. It was when Jesus broke the bread. But this was not the same meal. It was the same elements but it was not the same meal. This was not the meal that they had a few nights ago because the emphasis this evening is different. This meal does not happen on the night he was betrayed. It happens on the night he was revealed. So the emphasis in this meal is not the death of Jesus, but his resurrection. The mood then is not one of, of somber and low and threatening. The mood is one of joy and anticipation. This does not commemorate a sacrifice only. This commemorates the arrival of the kingdom because Jesus is not leaving Jesus is right with us at the table. 
All the elements are the same, but the entire meaning is different. The body and the blood are not those of a sacrifice. Not tonight. They are those of life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has my life in him. <laughs> Communion would mean something very different today were it not for the fact that Jesus is alive and he is not only going ahead of us, he is already here. And whatever we carry into this sacrament this morning, all these things, he is weaving them into something bigger than these little things. We need them, but there is something more that is happening right now in this Jesus that we are waiting to see one day with our eyes. We can recognize him today at the breaking of the bread. Oh, church, we can come to know him today in such a way that if he walked in this room or we went into his and we saw him with our eyes, it would not be much of an improvement. No, because I know him and I know when he's here.